Hi, and welcome to the West Visalia Audio Podcast. Each message is designed to help you grow and inspire you to take action. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button, and don't be shy to drop us a message if you have a question. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Okay, well, we will get started in our study of the Gospel of John, and guess what? It's pop quiz time, okay? So for those of you that were here last week, I'm going to be quizzing you on what we, what we talked about. Don't worry, it's not graded, and we won't hold it against you later. So review from last week, and this is our quiz. First off, true or false, and raise your hand if you know the answer, true or false, the oldest fragment of the New Testament we have is part of the Gospel of John. Tom says true. That is correct. Here you go, Tom. We have prizes, too. There you go. All right. Oh, yeah, now you want to take the quiz, huh? Okay, so, yes, the John Rylands papyri is a fragment of John chapter 18, I believe. It is referred to as P52. I think it's papyrus 52. It's the oldest fragment we have in the New Testament. Shows that the Gospel of John was circulating around early in, the, you know, at least the second century because of how old it is. Um, all right. I said, who did Cliff? Because there is debates on this. But who did Cliff say is the disciple who Jesus loved? All right. Carolyn says, John the Apostle. There you go, Carolyn. Prize for you. All right. Next question. And if you've already answered, you can't answer again. All right. What was John's profession? What's that? Fisherman is correct. I heard Selena say it first. There you go, Selena. By the way, these are just individual Gospels of John. And they don't have any verses or chapters, so it forces you to sit down and read it in its entirety. It's really cool. All right, next question. What was the name of John's brother? Yes. Well, you got to answer a question. Sorry, you got to answer the question right. It's a prize. Okay. What was the name of John's brother? James. Dixie got that one. Here you go. Don't worry, I have more of these in my office. Next week, there'll be prizes too. So tell your friends. All right, what is the key verse or verses of the Gospel of John? Yes, Don. John 20, 30, and 31. That's where John tells you why he wrote the book. You can look at your notes. That's not cheating. I didn't say it wasn't an open book test. All right, here you go. What are the three most important key words in the book? Oh, did you take notes? That is correct. But Dixie, you already answered correctly, so you don't get another prize. Who else? It's found in the key verse, the three words. There you go. Believe, life, and signs. Okay. There you go. So... I have more prizes for next week, so um, pay attention to class, and I'll ask you questions on it, and then you might get a prize, so that works out kind of fun. All right, so we are in the book of John. If you just came in or are coming in, you can go there, and we will, uh, we're going through the text trying to understand this magnificent book. Um, By way of review, the key verse of the Gospel of John, as was mentioned, is John 20, 30, and 31, and the reason why... I say this is the key verse of the book is because John tells you it's why he wrote the book. Here's what it says. End of the gospel, John is um, kind of recapping everything he's talked about, and he says, therefore, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. 
So John says, I wrote down all of these things. I wrote down about all the signs that Jesus did because I want you to believe in him. And if you believe in Jesus, you have life. Signs, belief, life are the key to this book. And although we normally think of signs as maybe just a miraculous event, um, John uses signs to even talk about some of the interactions that Jesus has with people. So the events in Jesus' life are designed to get us to believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And when you believe in Jesus, that leads toward life. And he's talking about eternal life here in this book. Um, John is the oldest gospel that we have. Um, it was written toward the end. I, that sounds weird, oldest, although it was written later. You know what I mean. It was the last gospel written. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written much earlier, decades before John writes his book. And because John wrote this toward the end of the first century, he's writing, you know, like 40, 50, 60 years after the time that Jesus was on earth. Why would that be significant? And what would be different about maybe the audience that John is writing to as well as the contents of the book? Very, very good. Yeah, so um, if you didn't hear Tom, primarily, you know, the early Christians, most of them, the first converts came out of Judaism. The day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, what kind of a feast day was it? A Jewish or a Gentile feast day? A Jewish one, right? 3,000 of them got converted that day. So, I mean, the early church primarily was Jewish. Um, and with that, too, by the way, a lot of the ancient Romans just viewed Christianity as, well, that's just another part of the Jewish faith. That's just the weirdo Jews that, that take communion. I mean, that's kind of what they did. But as the gospel spread, and Paul, as we're going to talk about this morning in our sermon, took the message to Europe and, and all the Gentile places up there, you have non-Jewish people being converted. And these Gentile people, as Tom mentioned, didn't have a familiarity with the Old Testament. They didn't know all the prophecies and about the Messiah. They didn't know about so much the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and so because of that, John writes this to give a recap to those individuals about who Jesus was. But even more so, John is very well suited to deal with their way of thinking. You have to remind, remember that back then, at this time, you have some great ancient philosophers and deep thinkers. And John's gospel is written in a way that would really be intriguing to the Greek mind. He uses a lot of abstract thoughts and, and, and contrast. And you can picture these ancient philosophers in their robes, you know, debating whether or not light cancels out darkness. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. That's how John writes. What is good? What is evil? What is life? Those are the kind of questions that your Plato and Socrates and things like that, or guys like that would debate. Well, John writes his gospel to relate to those types of individuals. So you have um, people that maybe didn't have a familiarity with, with the God of the Bible because they're Gentiles. Number two, you have a different way of thinking. And number three, now you have Christians who are maybe second, third, fourth generation Christians. There's a different message that you teach those people. Um, when I'm talking to an audience of people that grew up going to church, their parents grew up going to church and their grandparents did, the challenges of that audience is different than the audience of a group of people who are new converts. Maybe, well, what, what are some of the challenges of second and third generation Christians versus first generation? What are some of the challenges that maybe some of you have that have always been a Christian? Yeah, okay. You just assume, well, I got it all figured. I know what the Bible says, that kind of idea. What about the idea, too, that um, sometimes we can get kind of apathetic 
You know, you've ever, uh, a new convert to Christ can be on fire. They're like, well, man, I got to go tell my family about Jesus. And we're like, oh, we'll get around to that. We don't have that zeal as much anymore or that urgency, that fire in us that maybe we had early on. So there's some of those challenges too. And in the first century, now you no longer have eyewitnesses to Jesus. Those that were witnesses to Jesus are now pretty old. Um, and history sometimes is forgotten. You know, in an audience here on Sunday morning, okay, we'll put it in perspective. To me, 9-11 happened not too long ago. I mean, that was as I was getting into adulthood, and I remember that happening. I remember it vividly, watching that on the news and all that. Every teen in our youth group wasn't around then, okay, just to put that in perspective. That's history to them. To those of us who were there, it was real life, we were there, but now they're hearing about it secondhand. Some of you were around during Vietnam. Some of you were around during World War II, and those maybe have a different effect on you because you were there, whereas those that just read about it in history, hear people talking about it, it's a whole different perspective. I mean, try to explain a world without the internet to somebody who's eight years old. It, it doesn't work. It doesn't compute. You can't think that way. What do you mean that you didn't have access to this information? Well, John's writing to people who many, most of them now weren't firsthand witnesses to Jesus. So he has to approach it differently. All right, so we're going to pick up then. We're in the book of John, John chapter 1, and in verse 1, it begins with this powerful, profound statement that is designed to catch the attention of a, of a definitely a Greek reader, but a Jewish person too, and it even catches our attention. It says this, in the beginning was the word. Now, this is an English translation of it. We'll talk about it. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This phrase here, this word, word, here in this passage, is a Greek word, logos. Okay, you've probably heard that term before. There's a Bible software program that's the best one called logos. Um, not logos, like you draw something, but the Greek word, logos, is translated in our English Bibles as word. But it's not just, you know, written word. That's like graphe. That, that's that Greek word. That's not this, though. This word word, logos, is a word that represents thought, reason, mind, that kind of idea. And to a Greek reader, these ancient Greek philosophers were all about reason, weren't they? You know, what is reason? What is right? That kind of idea. So John says, in the beginning, there was reason. There was thought. There was mind. There was logos. So you're reading this now and you're hearing this, and it catches your attention. In the beginning was, was thought, was reasonableness, and that idea, that, that's going to draw you in a little bit. And what John says was, in the beginning was the word, or was this thought, was reason, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's going to draw you in because you're thinking, okay, hold up here. This word that you're talking about, this logos, was in the beginning. In fact, he, he existed before the beginning. In the tense of the verbiage here, we lose it a little bit in our English. It's the idea of was existing. So he's there already before beginning. This eternal thought existed before time itself. Now that's very abstract. That's very, you know, weird way, existential kind of way of looking at things. But John says in the beginning was the Logos, and 
he was in the beginning. And this Logos was not only in the beginning, he was with God, and he was God. That's going to be an attention getter. Because first off, now if you're a Christian, you might already know where this is going, okay? And I know most of you have read the Gospel of John, you know where John's going with this. But let's say you didn't know about Jesus so much. And you're hearing this, in the beginning was logos, word, thought, reason, mind, and it was existing before there was anything. So now you have a pre-existence of something, and he was with God. Wait, so it's, it's a personality now, uh, was with God, and is God? Verse 2 says he is in the beginning with God. This idea of, of the logos being God and with God would be almost kind of heretical if you think about it from the get-go. You're thinking, wait a second, hold up. Thought is God, God is thought, thought existed with God. That's kind of confusing, right? And John means it that way. It's meant to be kind of confusing. It's meant to be you and a bunch of, you know, white-robed, long-bearded philosophers sitting around talking about this. What do you mean that thought existed before there was time? That's odd. But then he goes on. He says, verse 3, all things came into being through him. So now the logos here is called a who? A him. A him. So now we know, wait a second. So John isn't talking about a idea. John's not talking about a feeling or an emotion. John's talking about a person. There's a person who existed before time, who was with God, and also, was God? How does that work? How do, our minds can't even think about that, right? I mean, so in the beginning was the logos, the word, the mind, the thought, and that existed before there was anything, but yet he was God, and he was with God, and as Carolyn said, he created everything. Verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that, sorry, that has come into being. Now, that's a big, giant circle way of looking at this, but this is deep. This is the most, like, profound, um, you know, heavy section of probably almost the whole of Scripture. It's describing, now, fast forward, I'm going to tell you who he's describing. He's describing Jesus, okay? That's what John's doing. But he's describing Jesus in a way that would catch your attention as a, as a reader at the end of the first century, especially someone who's maybe a deep thinker. He says, in the beginning was the word, the logos. That word was with God, and it was God, and he created everything. Nothing has ever existed that didn't come through him. Now, we know he's talking about Jesus, but see this presentation of him here? This is so huge. It's so profound. And probably we're scratching our heads a little bit, and so is John. But let me ask you a question. How do you describe Jesus before he was born of Mary? Where was he? Well, he was in the beginning. He was there, but he wasn't Jesus yet because Jesus was the name given to the baby there in the manger, right? How do you describe the pre-incarnate, the pre-existing, eternal Jesus? John's trying to do that here. And he's describing him in a way that's unique, but when you start to see it come together, you go, oh, wait a second, that makes sense. Jesus, because how do you describe God? We try to use human terms a lot of times to describe God. But how do you describe 
an omnipresent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, you know, omnipotent, powerful, eternal being. I can't. I mean, I have a hard time describing, you know, what I did throughout the day to somebody. I mean, and yet, here he's trying to describe Jesus before Jesus came to this earth. So here's how John describes it. He goes, before there was anything, there was reason and thought and life and everything. It's the logos. He takes this, this deep, really weighted Greek word. He says, and he existed before there was time. He was with God. So there, he's not God the Father necessarily, but he's also is God at the same time, and he's a creator of all things. Let's open up for comments or questions. What questions or comments do you have up through verse of three? Yes, Marty. Read it for the class, please. Yeah, and Paul even there is trying to, how do you describe the visible actions of the invisible God and all of that? It's just profound. When you look at this too, notice as we go on, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more, but in verse four he says, in him... This logos is the Greek word, this word, in him, and we know it's Jesus from later on reading this, but in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, this is designed, too, to catch your attention, especially if you are of a, of a deep thinking. This is the kind of the, the words to be floating around a philosophy class in a university, right? This idea of, well, Jesus is the possessor of life, but he also is the bringer of of light, because in him is light. Now think about a Greek mind here too. Light in their mind, of course, I know we know light, you turn on a light. When I got here in the church building this morning, Xander ran around a building turning on all the lights for me. Okay, that's, we understand that, that idea of that part of light, but there's something more there. To a Greek mind, light also reflects knowledge. We use this term. What do we say? Someone is enlightened enlighten me. We do the same thing because it, we kind of, the idea as the light bulb goes off in our head, right? We turn the lights on, all right? That kind of idea. You get it. You understand. So that's not a new concept. Even in the ancient Greek world, they used it. Something coming to light was coming to understanding. So Jesus pre-existed as God. He created all things, and he brings life, eternal life, which we'll talk about more here throughout this book, and he brings light. If you want to know something, you find it in Jesus. So if you want to find true knowledge, which an ancient philosopher wants to know things, they want what is knowable, what is unknowable? Well, John says, Jesus is the bearer and bringer of true knowledge. Verse five, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it or, or overpower it. So Jesus came into the world and he brought light to the world and the world has darkness in there, but the darkness could not stop it, is what John is saying here about Jesus. Now think about this angle too. Jesus came into darkness. Now, again, John is a book of contrast. It is a book of, you know, comparison. When we think of light and darkness, that's often a synonym for what two things? What's the comparison of? Good and evil. Jesus is good. He brings true knowledge, good knowledge, life to the world. But the world has darkness in there. Now, we're going to talk about the world here in a second, but there's darkness out there too. Where there's this great good, there's also evil. But even darkness, unknowing, evil, all of that, it could not stop Jesus or overtake him. 
those first five verses here introduce us to how powerful Jesus is, how you know, all his divine attributes and what he brings to the world. He's not just a fisherman or a carpenter from Galilee. He's not just a baby in a manger. He's not just that human form that we see talked about in most of the New Testament. He's eternal God before we all existed. Questions or comments? Not much you can say to that. I understand. I mean, what, how do we, this is the, the head scratcher one, right? But, but that's the way this is designed. And if there's one thing you need to get from verses one through five is that everything goes through Jesus and he is God. That's kind of what we're supposed to get from this. But what John does now is he, is he gives us another way of looking at it. He goes, by the way, there was a man named John. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about John the Baptist. He says, there came a man sent from God whose name was John, which they would have heard of John. Christians in the first century knew about John the Baptist. Remember, they had already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, okay? Those books had been around for decades. So they knew the stories. That's why John's is so different, too, because if you're going to retell the same story after everybody's heard it, uh, you know, a thousand times, you got to bring up some new information, right? I mean, I don't mean that flippantly, but you're going to t focus on a different angle. I remember being in a history class in college, and it was a, a, a world history course. I had already taken world history in high school, and my family is kind of history buff, so I had a pretty good familiarity with, with a lot of those kinds of things, especially, I remember it was about the post, I don't remember what era, but we were talking about World War II in that class most of the time. And I knew a lot about that. But what my teacher did was, is he tried to present constantly the conflicts between the different world leaders. And he would do these um, kind of imaginary dialogues with, with Churchill, and, and, and then he'd talk about Stalin, and he would do these different things because you're like, oh, he's telling a different angle. He's telling the same story, but he's emphasizing different things. That's what John does here too. So he brings it up, he brings up John the Baptist right now in verse six. Someone who's reading this already knew about John the Baptist, so he doesn't have to deal with him that much just yet. But he says, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light. Now, who's the light? The light is the word that we've already talked about, the logos. It's the pre-existing Jesus, as we're going to see here in a bit. But he says, John came, and he came as a witness. Um, it's, a, it's a Greek word, marturia, I believe, and it means testimony. It, 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 you can give a testify, uh, this idea. you got to remind yourselves of kind of the ancient court systems. They had witnesses. They had to give testimony. And if you were defending yourself, you gave what was called an apology. You're an apologist. Um, well, here, John is a witness. He can testify to the facts of what John is talking about here. John the Baptist can testify as a witness about the light. He can tell us that it's real. He can tell us that he, Jesus, is real and that what he did, and this is also an important word in the Gospel of John, so if you underline in your Bible, underline the word witness or testify in this verse because he's gonna use it a lot. In fact, throughout the book, there's going to be multiple people who give testimony to the reality of Jesus, which again, picture an ancient Greek courtroom scene. And it's like John the Apostle is saying, I'm going to present to you five witnesses. And these five witnesses are going to take the stand. And when they present their evidence, you're going to um, find out undisputably that Jesus is the Lord. 
And what John goes, I called to the stand witness number one, the blind man. And in John chapter five, the blind man would get up there and say, look, I don't know everything about Jesus, but I do know this. I was born blind, I can never see, and when he touched me, I could. Witness number two, Martha, what do you know? Well, look, I was there, I saw my brother die, I saw him put in the tomb, and I heard Jesus say, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came out of the tomb, and he was still wrapped up like a mummy. Witness number three, Pilate and the Jews. Pilate goes, look, I washed my hands of the situation, but even myself, I knew there was something special about him, and my wife had a dream about him. And then finally, I'm going to call to the stand Jesus himself. Jesus, did you do these things? How did you do this? And witness after witness after witness is all going to prove that Jesus is God. And that's how this book comes together. It's so awesome. And so John the Baptist here is just the first witness to everything that's going on. And when you hear the witnesses, the witnesses produce what? Belief in you. And when you believe, you may have life in his name. Purpose of the Gospel of John, right? So as we go on, John the Baptist preached. Verse seven, he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. So imagine John the Baptist is being put on the stand. Now we have John the Baptist here. John, you're a pretty important figure in Christian history, right? Well, yes, I am. Is it true, John the Baptist, that Jesus says that of all the people born of women that you are to be most honored? Yes, he did say that. I don't like to bring that up. I'm a humble guy. John the Baptist, is it true that, you know, you witnessed these different things, and even when you were in prison, your disciples came and told you about the blind seeing and the deaf hearing? Yes, this is true. Well, John, does that mean you're the Messiah? Absolutely not. John came not as the light, but to testify about the light. And that's what John the Apostle wants us to see here, that even this great figure in Christian history, John the Baptist wasn't God. He wasn't the true light. But John the Baptist came to tell us about the true light. Who's the true light? Jesus. And when you believe in Jesus as the true light, what can we find according to verse, oh, verse, uh, I just lost it. Um, verse seven, that we can believe in him and the believing, of course, we can have life. So now, with that in mind, he goes back to this idea of light. He starts off by talking about Jesus as the word. Then he talks about him as the light. These are all really intellectual terms too. This is not just a black and white, oh, light, darkness. No, 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 no. There's depth there. Light is, is knowledge, it's understanding. Word, well, yeah, word, it's what you write down. I know a lot of words, right? No, it's more than that. It's this idea that Jesus is thought and reason as we know it. The mind as we wish to comprehend it exists in Jesus. Life and light as we want to have it exists in Jesus. And in verse nine, even though John the Baptist was a very special person, he's not the true light. The true light is this one that John the, is talking about. Let's read verse nine. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. You see the play on words here, right? Light and enlightenment, this idea. Jesus, the true light, came into the world and he gives all people the ability to have light. When it's dark in a room and then you turn on the light, what can you then do? You can see, right? When Jesus comes into our life, things make sense. He allows us to see. 
That's why I think so many miracles have to do with blind people seeing too, by the way. It's, it's kind of this illustration of Jesus makes it possible for you to understand. So here's the light. And the light came into the world. The world, the word world in this passage too is this word cosmos. It is Jesus came into the created realm. And this word was more than just the globe. This is a word that meant everything. The, the sky, the stars, the universe, the earth, all of that is in this word right here. So Jesus, the true light, came into creation, into the cosmos, into the universe. And if the true light came into the universe, it makes it possible then for everyone in the universe to be enlightened. Light brings enlightenment. Jesus brings enlightenment to the world. Jesus brings knowledge. Jesus brings life to creation. That's what he did. And he can do that. Why? Verse 3. What did Jesus do? He made all things. If he's a great creator, that means he can enlighten his creation. And I know sometimes we try to pigeonhole, we try to comprehend, you know, the Trinity and that idea. What, what about the Father? What about the Son? And at least in my mind, it's always like, well, yeah, God the Father made all things. According to this, Jesus is just as much a creator in all of this. In fact, all things are made through him. And he can then come to his creation and bring light and enlightenment. He can exist in the world. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. He made it, and he can be in it. And the world did not know him. Now, someone who doesn't know, someone who doesn't understand, someone who's not in the light is where? Darkness. And that's kind of what, what we're trying to see here, is that there's two categories of people in the cosmos. There's those who are enlightened, those who know, those who see, and those who are in darkness, those who do not accept the true light, those who do not know, those who are in evil. Jesus came to the world, and you know what, verse 10, the world didn't know him. Wait, but, but he is the great word. He's the great logos. He's the one who brings true knowledge. How could people not know him? Because they're in darkness. Because they refuse to see the light. They refuse to be enlightened by Jesus. So Jesus comes into the world. The world does not know him. The world does not accept him. So even, in fact, verse 11, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Own probably being countrymen or family, that kind of idea. But Jesus came to them, and even those individuals didn't accept Jesus. Who, I mean, his earliest apostles, were they his family members? No. I mean, he grabbed like fishermen and things like that. It wasn't even till later after he resurrected from the dead that his own brother believed in him. Which, by the way, again, I'll say it again, that's great evidence for the fact that Jesus had to be the son of God. Because if you could convince your brother that you're the Messiah, you got something special about you. Yes. Yeah. The ones that were supposed to be enlightened and supposed to knew, know it, they rejected it. So verse 10 and 11, we find that he came into his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But, verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Those 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of, fle- of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. So now John takes it to the next level. He goes, yeah, Jesus came into the world, but not all the world saw him for who he was. But those who could truly see the light, they came out of darkness, and they believed in him. The book of John is designed to get us to believe. In fact, I've titled the class, That You May Believe, right? That's the purpose of this book. John said it, not me. So the whole idea is Jesus came, and not everybody believed him. But people who receive Jesus are those who become children of God. Those are the same people who believe in Jesus. And those who believe in Jesus who are are people who are born again, basically. But they're not born of, of fleshly things as we normally think about. But they're born of God. That's the gospel of John, right? Believe, receive, be born again. That's what the gospel of John is all about. And the people who do that, the people who can be enlightened, are those that are going to be called children of God. Now, if you're a Greek person at this time, too, or even a a Jewish person who's of that mindset and thought, this is going to be compelling to you because you want to be enlightened. That's what it was all about back then, knowledge and philosophers and ideas. Well, John here is telling you that if you want to have true enlightenment, come to Jesus. If you want to have true life, what does it mean to live? What's the good life? That's what philosophers would debate. Well, John says true life is found in Jesus. Well, how do I get to connect to this eternal existing being you're talking about? Receive him, believe in him, and be born again. Well, how can I be born again? It's not about flesh and blood, but it's about the will of God. That's the gospel of John. All right, any questions or comments up through verse 13? All righty then. It is, it is deep. I know there's not much we can say to that. And the more I look at this, it's like, you just pull off layer and layer of, of, of depth here. It's so awesome. Um, and by the way, those of you that got the prizes of the mini Gospel of John that I was giving out that answered questions correctly, I recommend you, and you can do this with your own Bible too, but I, I bought these um, because they're really cool because they don't have the verses, they don't have the chapters, and it forces you to just read. And when I was doing that, I did that a while back with the book of Acts. And so many key words came out to me. I was like, wow, he really mentions this a lot. There's stuff that as you read through it in its entirety, you'll realize that John emphasizes some things you didn't see before, and that's the beauty of the living word of God, that the more you get into it, the more you, you learn and the more you realize you don't know. It's truly awesome. Well, if you're here now and you're reading this in the first century, you've, your appetite has been wet. You're like, I want to know more. Tell me what this is all about. Maybe you didn't even know who Jesus was, or maybe you're thinking that's where he's going. I mean, whatever it is. Now verse 14 comes along. Verse 14, and the word, which we've kind of defined as the eternal thought, became flesh. Flesh is the idea of human. And he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God's glory is the same as this Jesus' glory, of Christ's glory. What John is telling us here is that everything that we think is awesome and amazing, that preexisted before time, light. Um, The word, life, all of that came to earth in flesh as a human. Which, by the way, that would be almost abhorrent to some people of of a Greek mindset. There was a belief system um, that came about um, in the early first centuries called Gnosticism. Um, You might be familiar with it, you might not. You don't have to know about it. But um, Gnostic thought was kind of these, these extremes. Spirit, good, flesh, bad. It's kind of that idea. So to them, the idea of Jesus coming in flesh 
couldn't happen because spirit's good, flesh is bad. In fact, when you read through like the book of 2 John, John calls certain people the Antichrist, which I know that's a politically hot-button word, which, by the way, in the book of 2 John, he makes it very clear. He says, there are many Antichrists who deny that Jesus came in the flesh. They're denying Jesus. And that was going on at this time, too. There was people who didn't believe that Jesus could come in the flesh. It's not possible for God to become human. Well, John says right off the bat here that he did. The eternal creator... The eternal logos, mind, life, light, however you want to describe Jesus before he was Jesus, came to earth as human flesh. God of the cosmos, the creator of all things, came into our realm. But he didn't just come into our realm as like a a spirit. He came into our realm as one of us. And when we saw him, because he dwelt among us too, he didn't just visit. No, no, no. He lived among us. When we saw him, we saw his glory. He had his own glory that he possessed, but his glory was also glory that comes from being the only unique son of God from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, your version might have a different terminology there. We'll talk about this more a little bit when we get to like John 3.16. But my, my version here in, on the New American Standard Version calls Jesus the only begotten. Up here I use, I think that's the ESV. It calls him as the only son. We missed something here a little bit. The idea of Jesus being the only begotten, that, that kind of has gotten lost in antiquity a little bit or in, in time how we use that terminology. The phrase here is a Greek phrase, monogenes, which kind of means one and only unique special. There's only one Jesus. There's only one who has ever came from God and as God dwelt as human flesh. The unique, special one, Jesus. He is so special. He's the only one because he is the eternal creator and he came to earth as flesh. See, there's a little bit more, at least in my mind, when I hear only begotten, I think, oh, he's born. It's deeper than being born. It is, no, he's the one of a kind. He's the only one that's ever been produced, okay? He's the one that's completely unique. And when you see Jesus, notice, when you see Jesus, we see his glory, but it's glory as one that can only come from the Father. So when you see Jesus, who do we see? God, the Father, right? We see everything about him, which, by the way, John's gonna make that argument here in a second because there's a lot of people who've never seen God, but you do see God in Jesus. But God's glory is the same as Christ's glory. And I want to get through verse 18, so we're going to buzz through this part right here. For John, John the Baptist, testified about him, verse 15. And he cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So John the Apostle reminds us again of what John the Baptist preached. John the Baptist preached about a person who's higher rank than him. You can't get any higher rank than being the only one of God. That's Jesus. And John the Baptist even attested to the fact that Jesus existed before him. And John the Baptist lets us understand that no one has ever seen God, but Jesus in the flesh, we see him. Look as we go on, verse 16. For the fullness, for of his fullness, we have all received, and grace upon grace... For law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, the last verse we're going to look at today. 
No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now you're thinking, what are you talking about? Here's what John is saying. He goes, look, John the Baptist understood that Jesus was amazing and that he existed before him. And if you want to know God, which your ancient Roman would have wanted to know God, we want to know God. If you want to know God, know Jesus. You know, you think about this idea of no one has ever seen God, right? Moses, did he see God? Yeah, the King James, I think, says something like the the hind part. It's it's a it's a Hebrew word, Shekinah, I believe it is. Um, it, it means glory. But even then, he didn't actually see God. He saw the glory of Him. When he went to the burning bush, he didn't see God. He saw a burning bush. Uh, might be symbolism to light and tree of life too, by the way. Um, but he saw God there, but he didn't actually see God. No one has. We can't see. Our minds couldn't even see. The eternal God. But the eternal God coming in flesh makes it possible for our human eyes to see and to comprehend. And when we see Jesus, we see God. So what John is saying in his um, uh, gospel right here is that you need to think about Jesus. You need to receive him. You need to believe in him because if you want to have true knowledge, if you want to find true enlightenment, it only comes from knowing God. And you know God by knowing Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, which we'll talk more about grace and truth next week. But if you want that, if you want grace upon grace, it is only found in Jesus. All right, well, we'll stop right there. Comments or questions as we close this morning? I know there's a lot to take in, so... It's kind of hard. How do, you, how do you reply to that? How do you respond to that? I know that's a little bit of a challenge. As we go on in the Gospel of John, there'll probably be more opportunity for discussion. We talk about how people interacted with him and some of the challenges and sins and all of that. But verse 1 through 18 of the Gospel of John is his prologue for the entire book. And it is probably one of the most profound pieces of literature, if not the most, ever penned. And it is amazing, it's deep, it's magnificent, and yet at the same time, it's also simple in that it teaches us who Jesus is. We'll stop right now, I'll lead us in a prayer, and then we'll have about a 15-minute break until we start worshiping here at 10.30. Be sure to greet everybody and, and all that kind of stuff, I guess with distancing appropriately and that kind of thing. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for giving us your word, particularly now as we've studied through the Gospel of John, we pray that we truly see how amazing Jesus is and that we will receive him, believe in him, and find life in him. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. All right, you're dismissed. Thanks again for listening to West Visalia Audio. We hope these messages have helped you grow and inspired you to take action. Be sure to check in each week for more on-the-go content or visit our YouTube channel to watch the live video. Thanks for participating, and God bless.